The story gets a little more difficult here. This gift that Hannah has given to the tabernacle in Shiloh, to Eli and his family, his sons are priests, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, and the child that she's born, has, she's given to God. And every year she makes a little outfit for him and takes it to him. Um, you can feel just the sheer love in this story of, her, of a mother for her son in this way that she has given him to God and she leaves him alone. That's the hardest part in the story for me, or the most remarkable thing, that she goes once a year. Imagine having a child and then going and seeing them once a year. And it's not because she's far away. She's not that far away, you know, for the way the distances that we close to see the ones we love. But she is there to give him to God. Um, And the question I'm sure she's asking in her mind is, is it worth it? Is it worth what I did? Um, Is it it worth the heartache and the, the loneliness and the pain of giving this child to the tabernacle. Meanwhile, there's another plot brewing in the story, and that is the sons of Eli. They're scoundrels. Um, Every language has a word for this kind of person. Um, People that are just scoundrels, 'er ne'er-do-wells. They always seem to be sitting in the back seat of the police car, Um, except for these guys haven't been sitting in the back of any police cars. They are They are in charge. They are running the temple or running the tabernacle at this time. They are priests. We are introduced to them in the first chapter as priests. Um, They are not just kids running around the tabernacle like Samuel is. They are full-fledged officers of this organization. And they're doing this uh, greedy behavior, um, greedy um, snatching of people's sacrifices. I like how... um, the text makes it very clear that while the, pre- the meat is boiling, we get a little bit of the recipe book for the um, sacrificial system there. Um, they're being boiled in a pan, a kettle, or a cauldron, or a pot. Now, in Hebrew, those are all different things. <laughs> um, you know, the, I guess they're size-related, um, that one is bigger than the other. I don't know the distinction. Um, but for some reason, these four words are used to describe all the ways that people are used, preparing food there in the tabernacle. The sacrificial system of ancient Israel, pre-temple, this is before Solomon builds a temple, and they're in the tabernacle. There's still an altar, a brazen altar, a bronze altar. Um, bronze, of course, is an alloy of, I think, copper and tin. Um, it's a sign of, of a little more advanced civilization. And so this bronze altar that they have has a grate on it. Um, a lattice worked great and made out of wire, um, bronze wire. And on this grate is placed the meat of the sacrifice. But here in this text, we have a recording of the meat boiling in a pot, uh, boiling in a cauldron, in a kettle, um, sort of like in an old story where there's like a kettle and a fire, like stone soup or something, and they're like stirring it with a big spoon, kind of like at our chili fest when we had the big Jim Cochran stirring Um, the chili with that giant paddle, and George and others. Um, Pretty cool stuff. But uh, this seems to be a little different than the whole burnt offering. I'm not sure what's going on here in the sacrificial system. It's hard to know. Uh, 
were the was the meat boiled and then placed on the bronze altar as sort of like a barbecue we also know there were sacrifices called holocausts holocaust is a greek word for the hebrew word for whole burnt offering um, when they would place an animal on the altar and burn it entirely down to the bones nothing is left it is totally given to god most of the sacrifices in the tabernacle and temple were not whole burnt offerings um, parts of the animal was burned up. Other parts were eaten by the priest's family. Um, and yet in this time period, it seems like most of the meat is not really for the priest's family, like Hophni and Phineas, these kids. That people are sort of expected to maybe eat the meat themselves, consume it themselves um, after they offer the sacrifice. Of course, the term Holocaust um, takes on greater significance after World War II in the Shoah, as it's called by, by many Jewish people, the extermination of Jewish people in, in Nazi Germany and their, and their expanding empire. Um, that, that whole burnt offering idea was given as a way of describing what happened to the Jewish people, harking back to these days of, of animal sacrifice. Um, a, a very disturbing image in many ways, and yet one that captures what really happened. Um, and so... Um, this three-pronged hook, I don't know what it looked like. I picture like a gardening tool, um, sort of, those gardening rakes, little tiny handheld ones, and they would just grab this thing and just whack it into the, the cauldron and pull out meat. And if anybody said anything, they'd say, hey, we're going to hurt you if, you if you don't listen to us. They are the temple authority. They are the authority system in, in the tabernacle. They are the sons of Eli. They, they have a, a privilege that few other people have. Um, in this story, I always think of Saddam Hussein and his two sons, Uday and Kusay. Um, while Saddam was brutal and, you know, certainly did his share of chopping people up in and putting them in boxes and mailing them to their relatives and really cruel, macabre things, his sons, Uday and Kusay, were terrible for this, the, the nation of Iraq. They were um, predatory beyond measure, um, beyond any sense and decency. And Saddam was constantly trying to, to rein them in. Because it's one thing being a powerful dictator that's sort of risen up through the system on your own. Then you have these kids who use that power to just take whatever they want. And that situation's happening in the tabernacle at this time. And so the real problem, there's so much time and space dedicated to what these sons are doing with this meat. And then we find out later that they're sleeping with the women that are coming to the, to the tabernacle. And that seem, seems like a lesser charge of, of wrongness in the story. Um, it's almost like an afterthought. And by the way, Eli finds out that, that they're you know, sexually assaulting women who are coming to worship. Um, how Hannah avoided that fate, it's not, not clear um, in the story because she goes to the temple in a very vulnerable state, um, her, the tabernacle in, in a very vulnerable state um, and it's Eli she talks to, not the sons, which is a, probably a good thing. And yet they're, they're doing this too. And the reason the sacrificial problems are emphasized is because when you mess with the sacrificial system, you are messing with God's salvation history. You are messing with the way God has planned to save all of humanity. You're messing with the, the holiest thing that's happening. Not because it's holy and set apart and sacred, like it's off limits, but holy in the sense that it's accomplishing something that people really need. And when you mess with something that people really need, God shows up 
And God shows up in the story um, in the life of this little boy who's wearing this linen ephod. Again, later in 1 Samuel, we'll find another man, where, another character who wears a linen ephod. His name is King David, and he's just conquered Jerusalem. And he's marching into the city when the bands are playing, and he, he's twirling before the Lord, twirling before the Lord in his linen ephod, um, a garment, an undergarment, or a garment a child would wear just as a main garment. Um, he's twirling before the Lord, and his, his wife, Michal, Saul's daughter, mocks him as she looks out the window. And, um, and God curses her for that mocking. Um, she says, you know, put on some clothes. You're acting like a fool in his worship, exuberant worship. But here the, the Lord shows up by saying, and Eli says it too, when you uh, sin against another person, when you abuse and hurt another person, um, you can make that right. You know, when you do wrong to another human, you can have an intermediate mediary come and save you and talk them down and say, hey, he'll pay you this money for what he did. He broke your window. He wrecked your car. Um, but who will intercede for you when you sin against the Lord? When you mess with the temple and the tabernacle, when you mess with the salvation of God, when you mess with the way God is helping people heal from their, their pain and suffering, the, t- the tabernacle was not just a place of sacrifice. It was a place of healing. Um, the priests were charged with with checking people for diseases and praying for their healing. This was the sort of the healthcare system of the day as well as a sacrificial system. And so when you mess with things that are helping people, the Lord shows up and he shows up in this story. Who can make an intercession? Of course, this uh, leaves the question hanging. Who can stand between a human and God when, when a human sins? Who can be that intermediator, Barry? Who can be the mediator between God and humans? Who can stand in that gap and represent us before God? And the answer as a Christian is, well, that's what Jesus does. He stands in the middle of humanity and God. He is both God and human. He is in his crucifixion. We can see this happening in real time. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He embodies that human cry that we all have at times in our lives. We say, all is lost. It's over. I can't make it anymore. That's when we are fully experiencing that mediating work of Jesus because he does stand in for us. He does become that mediator. He does show us that there is, there is a future for us. There is a hope for us that whatever happened to Jesus is going to happen to us. And this death and resurrection pattern of Jesus' life is the pattern of all human lives, including yours and mine, that we will die on this planet in the real way at the end or in little ways along the way. But this is what resurrection means, is that new life is always coming, that new chances are coming, new opportunities, um, and new hope that we need to get through every single moment of every single day. And so the story of Samuel now is more than just this boy. His life is now a conflict between the God who called people to worship him in the desert and build this tabernacle, and the men who are perverting the tabernacle. Now Samuel is caught between the two, and his whole life will be like that. He'll be caught between these two groups of people that hate each other, or two groups, entities, um, where he has to mediate them. And this is where he learns it, right here in this very dysfunctional system. Um, So if you grew up in a dysfunctional system, if you grew up in a human family, you grew up in somewhat of a dysfunctional system, and some are more dysfunctional than others. 
um, you are not alone. Um, the kind of things you learned in those dysfunctional systems that you had to do to survive are the kinds of gifts that, that, that someday will result in bringing people together that don't that are having conflict. And that's my prayer for you. If you have had that grief from growing up in a conflicted place, that you can, through the transforming power of God and through therapy and other ways, um, use those gifts that you had learned as a child to mediate some of the, the conflicts around you, if that's what God is calling you to do. I'm not saying you should walk into stuff if you don't need to. But what I'm saying is that Samuel learned that right here in this place of great difficulty. Amen. The Song of Zechariah is on page 92. Zechariah is a priest in the temple. Um, and so this song embodies um, the kind of prayers that priests in the temple or tabernacle would have prayed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. He has come to his people and set them free. He has raised up for us a mighty Savior, born of the house of his servant David. Through his prophets he promised of old that he would save us from our enemies, from the hands of all who hate us. He promised to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. This was the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to set us free from the hands of our enemies, free to worship him without fear, holy and righteous in his sight all the days of our life. You, my child, shall be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give his people knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins in the tender compassion of our God. The dawn from on high shall break upon us to shine on those who dwell in the darkness in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. 